Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I, I think it's it's really essential that we ultimately have a, a cheap, robust supply chain for artemisinin. And, and I personally don't really care where that comes from. You know, I'm, I'm obviously uh, passionate about plants, but if we can ultimately produce it better, you know, in a, in a yeast platform, then, then that's great, you know. And uh, there's plenty of other things that plants are good at doing as well. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and some of the good things it can do for people and the planet. I'm Kevin Fulta, and today we're going to talk about the issues associated with treating malaria, and in particular, the compound artemisian, which is a compound derived from a plant with a similar name. And we're going to be speaking with Professor Ian Graham. Uh, Dr. Graham is a fellow of the Royal Society, and he's also the Weston Chair of Biochemical Genetics at the University of York in York, England. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Graham. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I'm excited that you're here, too. I caught the vast majority of your talk at uh, ASPB in Montreal, the American Society of Plant Biologists, and you were the opening talk of the keynote opening session and it, it was so exciting to see uh, this kind of convergence of plant breeding as well as molecular biology biochemical uh, biochemistry and all around the problem of uh, human health and the two examples that you gave and today we'll talk about the first one which is a remedy towards malaria and can we start out by talking about malaria in general how many people are affected and Really, where is the majority of the problem? So malaria remains a very serious and sometimes fatal disease. And uh, according to the World Health Organization, there was 216 million cases worldwide in 2016, which is a, which is a lot. That's, that's decreased slightly, but obviously not enough. And in fact, in, in 2016, there was an estimated 445,000 deaths and most of those were children from sub-Saharan Africa. It gives you an idea of the magnitude of the problem. It's really interesting that we know so little and have so little awareness of this in the Western world because I've, I've seen that graphic where it talks about we worry about shark attacks, but <laughs> so few of them happen, when really the mosquito is probably the most insidious uh, killing animal on the planet. Yeah, it's, it's, it's referred to as the... the the biggest killing animal, as you say, I, I should just point out so that you're not you're not ignorant of the fact. But there's something like 1,700 cases of malaria in the United States, which is which comes from travelers coming back from those those countries where malaria is uh, is happening. So so it's something to be concerned about everywhere in the world, and not just in in uh, those countries where people are suffering daily from it. Uh, the the symptoms are are severe 
uh, people go into into shaking and chills and they can come in and out of that. It's it's worse than people who have never been exposed to the, this uh, to to bites from mosquitoes. And so I, I say to my students, if they're going off in a gap year, that they need to be very, very careful. Because if, if you haven't been exposed to malaria, then it can kill you. And that's why in, in sub-Saharan Africa, if children survive, and as I said, a lot of them unfortunately don't survive once they catch it. But if they do, they have some, some resistance, which allows them to survive into adulthood. But then even... Even if they have malaria and they're suffering from it in adulthood, it's a huge lo- load on society because people are lethargic and, as I say, go in and out of sickness. And, and the, the basis of this disease, like the pathology, is this all caused by a plasmodium or what is the major, vec- I guess, causal organism in the disease? Yeah, there, it's caused by a plasmodium. In fact, there are four different species uh, of plasmodium that are known around the world the one the one that's most prevalent and and the biggest killer is plasmodium falciparum and basically it has a life cycle where it spends part of its life cycle in the mosquito and then through biting uh humans and and other animals the mosquito transfers the parasite to your blood and from there it can travel to the liver and, and change its form. And from the liver, it goes back into the blood and then ruptures red blood cells. And it's that rupturing of red blood cells which can cause anemia and ultimately cause death with ruptured red blood cells blocking your capillaries. So it's, it's uh, yeah, it's a horrible disease. So what, what are the traditional ways in which it's treated? So it's, it's a classic... You know, arms race, the way that it's, it's, uh, that, that medicines have been developed to treat malaria over, over the years. Quinine, uh, was one of the first treatments, uh, from discovered and developed, uh, since the 1800s. And, but as with a lot of, uh, infectious diseases with, with parasites, then there's this arms race that goes on with the parasite developing resistance to the drugs. And uh, and then, you know, the pharmaceutical industry uh, and biomedical researchers having to develop new drugs that uh, that the parasite hasn't got resistance to. And this this goes on. It's similar in many ways to antibiotic resistance developing uh, against bacteria. So uh, so we've had a number of drugs that that have been developed. Uh, going back as we we come on to talk about Artemisia, that that compound's been used in Chinese traditional medicine for several thousand years, and uh, and so there's you know, human civilizations have have found various ways to treat it, but unfortunately the parasite itself is also very smart and can uh, can evolve uh, to to get resistance to to what we have discovered. And, and what exactly is Artemisia? Is this a uh, uh, so it's a plant that's been used in medicinal context? But uh, what is it, and where does it grow? So Artemisia annua, to give it its full name, and the, the, that second part of the name, you know, emphasizes that it's an annual plant. It's uh, it grows in China and Vietnam, and it uh, produces uh, frond-like leaves and and produces a lot of biomass in fact you can get you know tons of biomass quite easily and it 
It produces glandular trichomes on the surface of the leaves. These are, you know, little glands similar to what you find on a mint plant that gives that wonderful uh, mint flavor and, and aroma. And so the, these glands on the surface of the leaves are really small factories that are used by plants to produce a whole lot of different chemicals that they want to produce and you often use to uh, to fight off attack uh, from from uh, other other invaders of of, uh, of plant leaves and cells. That's a really interesting point because, and I think the listeners can maybe uh, think about you know, like you mentioned, the glandular trichomes, and you mentioned mint, but also on things like hops and other plants or other types of plants. These are these uh, small little hairs that happen on the leaf. Sometimes give it a rough feel. And they're, in many cases, used to provide a physical barrier of defense against insects, but also they produce a lot of very interesting secondary metabolites, meaning these compounds that are very specialized compounds that are not involved in the primary metabolic functions of the cell, but do something to um, enhance the survivability, whether it's something nutritionally or, in this case, a defense compound. So how was this stuff identified, though, and how was it first isolated? So that's that's a very interesting story in itself. It was, uh, as I said, known in Chinese traditional medicine for a couple of thousand years, and uh, and then during the Vietnam War, in fact, uh, you know there were there were more American soldiers and and also Viet Cong dying of malaria than enemy fire, and and so malaria is a huge problem. And and to this day, the U.S. Department of Defense, you know, does a lot of work on infectious disease for that very reason that, you know, that that armies in in foreign countries can suffer from these infectious diseases. And so there was a a program launched by Chairman Mao in, in China after he met with Ho Chi Minh during the, the Vietnam War to uh, to find a cure for malaria. And that led to a large group of Chinese scientists, pharmaceutical chemists, botanists, uh, working on on finding a, a solution. And they, they found reports in ancient Chinese uh, medicine books referring to this plant Artemisia annua that was in Chinese traditional medicine, effectively in, in boiling water, that it could be used to treat people suffering from fevers. And one particular scientist called Yu Yu Tu, uh, a very famous uh, female scientist in China today, was recognized as, as being one of the key people who discovered that this plant was actually producing a small molecule which she later defined as uh, the compound, it's a 15-carbon uh, sesquiterpene, so it's a terpenoid compound. And uh, and UU2 won, won the 2015 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for discovering artemisinin, and, and I think that she's the first Chinese woman to win the Nobel Prize uh, for work done in China. So it's a, a great accolade to that. That work that that was then all published and went into the public domain during the course of the 1970s, but it was only in the early 2000s that the World Health Organization really recognised that artemisinin uh, could be used uh, and recommended it to be used as the first line treatment 
for people suffering from malaria. But when you talk about the problem and the magnitude of the millions of people that are affected, how is there possibly enough of this artemisinin, artemisinin available to be able to treat that many people? And is it something that is in short supply, or do you have farms of this plant to grow it or produce it? It's grown mainly in China. I think about 70% of the world's supply is is uh, produced in China. It's also grown in Madagascar and, and East Africa. It's farmed. It's by smallholder farmers and uh and you know they they grow it under contract typically with an extractor uh, on areas of land that are quite small, uh, about an acre. So you can have thousands of smallholder farmers growing artemisia. Uh, they cut it down and dry the leaf, and then the leaf is sh- shipped off to the extraction factory for extraction of the drug. You know it's like any other agricultural uh, product in in that. You know the, the price can fluctuate, so that you know if if there's if there's lots of it grown one year, then there's there's lots available, and the the price inevitably goes down. Uh, so you you do get peaks and troughs in in price uh, of the of the drug, but the the very interesting thing in the context of the the plant or agricultural based production uh, is that the work that that we've done on the plant, which was funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation from 2006, uh, was focused on improving the the plant-based production, and we developed new F1 hybrids for that production. Uh, In parallel with that, uh, the Gates Foundation funded a a synthetic biology-based approach, which which was led by Jake Eastling at Berkeley and, and the biotech synthetic biology company Amaris and uh, that was also very successful at taking the genes out of plants and putting them into yeast uh, to produce not artemisinin but a precursor of artemisinin called artemisinic acid and so it's it's been an interesting approach and and to the to this day it's it's still being optimized the, the, the ultimate goal being that there will be an alternate supply of artemisinin uh, that, that can bolster the plant-based agricultural production in order to, to uh, keep the price as, as low and as predictable as possible. Well, that sounds really exciting. I think it's a great idea to be able to translate these things into microbes um, for enhanced drug production. So let's follow up with that a little bit on the other side of the break. Uh, We're speaking with Professor Ian Graham, who is a professor of biochemistry at University of York in the UK. And we're talking about artemisia and artemisinin, the compound that helps fight malaria and new ways to enhance its production. We'll be right back after this. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. As always, we're excited to deliver the exciting stories of how DNA-based technologies are providing new solutions for people all over the planet. We're learning more about who we are as a species, the life around us, and how we can produce better food for more people with sensitivity to this big stupid rock in space that sustains us. This podcast is funded 100% by Kevin Folta and comes to you free each week for your listening pleasure. 
We actively turn away advertisers that could defray the costs of this enterprise, because that would simply reinforce the beliefs of the whistleblowing merchants of doubt that believe education is simply a tentacle of corporate conspiracy. You can help by writing a review on iTunes, tell your friends, write a review on a blog, or leave some positive thoughts on the BuzzFeed article about me, Fern Blazer. Most of all, share the beautiful stories of science that you hear each week. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast today, talking with Professor Ian Graham from University of York about artemisia and artemisinin, which is the plant and the compound associated with treatments for malaria. And before the break, we discussed what this was and what the problem was and what are some of the solutions. But now let's go a little bit more into the genes and metabolism and some of the ways that plants and microbes may have been or have been uh, manipulated or enhanced to be able to produce these compounds. What are the pathways involved? I mean, where does this come off of, of, of uh, primary metabolism? I mentioned uh, before the break that these glandular trichomes are used as factories for production. And, uh, and most of secondary metabolism comes off primary metabolism, as, as you've said. Uh, and the, for, for the whole of terpenoid metabolism, there's, there's two possible routes in. One is, one is through acetyl-CoA in the, in the cytosol, which goes through the malavonic pathway. And, uh, and there's an, another pathway which operates in plastids, which really comes from pyruvate, the so-called MEP pathway. And both of those pathways feed into the terpenoid biosynthesis pathway. And this, this pathway, it basically it's building bricks of five carbon units, which are added on uh, with, with each, each cycle. And, uh, and so you go up to 10 carbons, which are monoterpenes, 15 carbons, which are sesquiterpenes, and 20 carbon units, which are diterpenes, and then so on uh, and, into bigger numbers. And uh, the artemisinin in itself is a 15-carbon sesquiterpene, and the, and the substrate which feeds directly into that pathway is parnasyl pyrophosphate. And, and that comes directly from mevalonate pathway, or well, you mentioned before the two ways to do it, but that is yes. a but that is something that can come directly from mevalonate as well, a mevalonate pathway. Yes. yes, and and so there's a lot of this around. It would seem inside the plant that this is a rather abundant. Well, it feeds into many different pathways for secondary metabolism. So, is are, do you understand or do we know the specific enzymatic steps that allow the basic precursors to be transformed into artemisinin? Yes, the uh, you know the great thing about these glandular trichomes as well is that these these specialized enzymes, the genes encoding them, are only expressed in the glandular trichomes. They're not found. They're not found in other leaf cells or root cells, for example, and. Uh, you know the first the first committed step is a is a cyclization where you take this fifteen carbon uh, FPP and you cyclize it and uh, to a compound called amor- amorphophorylevandiene, 
and the enzyme is a morphophorylevandiene synthase, and and that cyclizes uh, the the 15 carbons. And then, like most or, or all of secondary metabolism, once you once you get that uh, carbon skeleton backbone, which usually involves ring type structures, then there's a bunch of different enzymes involved in decorating the backbone, decorating it with hydroxyl groups or double bonds or uh, or additional uh, methyl groups, for example. And it's, it's that decoration which then leads to further alteration of the backbone and also the bioactivity that you find, the exquisite bioactivities that'll, that usually or often come down to protein small molecule interactions. So, uh, so the, the, the entire pathway is well understood. In fact, there's a, a cytochrome P450 oxidase enzyme which carries out three or four uh, subsequent oxidation reactions on that amorphophorylevandiene structure. And then uh, that, that can then be further reduced uh, to a starting molecule in the plant, which is called dihydroartemisinic acid. And, uh, and the really interesting thing about the, the pathway in plants, which we... Uh, we contributed to the demonstration and discovery of a couple of years ago in a paper published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in the USA is that the last set of reactions are non-enzymatic uh, and they're carried, they're carried out in planta uh, by a, a photooxidative process. They need light in order for that th those final reactions that lead to artemisinin uh, the molecule that kills the malaria parasite. Uh, and that molecule is, is it's a really unusual molecule in that it's, it's got an endoperoxide bridge across uh, one of the, the ring structures. And it's that endoperoxide bridge which, which can act as the, the warhead, as it were, uh, to, to attack the, the parasite once it's, up, uh, once it's taken into the blood. So, uh, so in plants, it's it's a combination of biochemistry and then and then autocatalytic chemical conversion, and that that that's, uh, that raises an interesting uh, point because you know these glandular trichomes that have evolved over you know flowering plants have been on the planet for over a hundred million years. So, so sometime during that. Uh, glandular trichomes have evolved, as I said, to to help the plant fend off biotic and abiotic attacks. And uh, these factories quite often have the ability to carry out both biochemical and chemical conversions. And so if, if you help us understand this part, so if you think about the FPP as being the first compound and artemisinin being the last one, how many steps are involved in that process? So it's about 10, yeah. 10 different steps. So, uh, so I was saying the, the, the P450 carries out uh, a couple of steps. Uh, I'm saying a couple because when it's, when it's going into artemisinin, it's two steps. When, it goes, when it's going to artemisinic acid, which is the pathway in yeast that will come onto it, it carries out an additional oxidation reaction. And then you get, you get uh, 
dehydrogenase reactions and reductase reactions, which which further are ne- which are needed to produce this precursor to artemisinin, which is DHAA or dihydroxyartemisinic acid, and then you get a series of autocatalytic steps uh, to produce artemisinin. And, and uh, depending on how you split those autocatalytic steps, it can be eight or ten reactions to to produce artemisinin. Okay, so on that same continuum, if we think about you know the precursor to the final product, how many steps are already inherent in something like corn or soybeans that we you know we grow billions of acres of these? Is this something that are most of those intermediates something that are present in other plants, or are these very specialized just to artemisia? No, that's a very good question. And in fact, they, you know, corn and, and all plants make lots of FPP, that precursor. Uh, but the the pathway itself is completely specific to Artemisia annua. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's that, it's a very specific cyclization reaction, which is carried out by this enzyme amorpha-411-diene synthase. And quite often that it's, that's why you know these these cyclization enzymes are very are very specific, and you find them in and and find them in you know in different species making different backbones for different activities. Uh, you know there will be other there will be other uh, sesquiterpenes and diterpenes um, made in in plants such as corn, but they will be different to uh, to artemisinin. Yeah, so it all goes back to that same sesquiterpene backbone, but different decorations and different ways that that backbone might be bent and, and cyclized. That's pretty much it? Yeah, yeah. So, so if you did decide to move this to something like uh, you know, bacteria or yeast, as we mentioned earlier, how difficult is it to really move a very specialized set of metabolic steps into a single-celled organism? The first thing is there's there's a few things that you need. The first thing is you need the genes, you know, because if people think about synthetic biology, then you know genes are the currency of synthetic biology, and you need the you need the genes encoding the proper en- the right enzymes to uh, to make what what whatever you want. So that's that's one of the first things you need. Uh, you then need. You need a really good supply of that starter substrate, which is FPP uh, that we were talking about that, that is cyclized. And uh, and some companies now have done a really good job in, in baker's yeast or brewer's yeast, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, to, to engineer the basic metabolism in those yeasts to, to make, you know, bucketfuls of FPP and... Uh, and 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 not just FPP, but the, the you know adding on and other fat carbons to GGPP, and so the those those uh, platforms for synthetic biology have really advanced and developed in recent years. Amaris are a very good example of having done that. You know that's that's not all you need because as I was saying, the case with artemisinin and what makes it a real challenge for synthetic biology is. You know that it's not just biochemical enzymatic steps that are responsible for its production. Those last steps 
you know, from DHAA, which is completely inactive. Uh, Dihydroartemisinic acid is is completely inactive against the malaria parasite. And in fact, the other thing is that artemisinin itself is quite cytotoxic. Uh, so a yeast cell isn't going to be very happy producing something which is phytotoxic. So, and this is this is the case with lots of different compounds that we, we now want to make for the pharmaceutical industry or flavor and fragrance industry in in bugs such as as yeast, because quite often those molecules will have some toxic effects on single cells, and that's one of the other wonderful things about glandular trichomes on plants because. They, they've evolved to actually pump the final product out onto the surface of the glandular trichome. So there's a sort of hydrophobic droplet that sits, that's covered in a waxy layer on the surface of the glandular trichome, which can accumulate, and we think accumulate precursors to artemisinin, and then the, the chemistry, as it were, to produce this final quite toxic compound at, at high concentrations could even be happening on the outside the cells. And so there's exquisite transport of precursors outside the cell to get them outside the glandular trichomes as well. So so I'm saying all that because then when you start making compounds like this in, in a single cell such as yeast, you have to think about transporting precursors out into the media and how can you f- convert those precursors to the final product. So... So you need a really good host system, you need the right genes, you need to be able to do the right chemistry eventually, and and you need really re- really to be able to scale that up to, to large scale so you can compete with plant-based production because ultimately, ultimately for all of these projects, the final decision is made by economics uh, and, and where can you make it uh, the cheapest. So it's... it's uh, you know, it sounds straightforward, but it's often a very complicated process. Well, let's, let's revisit that thought about making this in plants. You mentioned your genetic improvement methods by using F1 hybrids from uh, with Gates Foundation. Uh, how, um, how well does that work to increase your yields of the final product? So we, we uh, you know, in the course of of our work using using procedures such as mutagenesis, where we in, we increase the genetic variation that we had available to us uh, for you know fast track molecular marker assisted breeding, uh, and also using natural variation that we had available to us and finding the best parents to make F1 hybrids using you know a combination of conventional approaches and marker assisted breeding, we were able to get a really robust F1 hybrids. That's the great thing about hybrids is that they grow fast and they're robust. That also had, you know, good biomass yields and and higher concentrations of artemisinin per unit weight than we'd seen before. So so we ended up, you know, field trialing our best hybrids around the world in China and, and uh, Africa and India as well, although India really proved to be too hot for production. And we we got significant increases compared to what was what was uh, you know available for growers. And I'm really pleased to be able to say that in twenty fifteen we after a series of field trials in, in China by a 
by a, a government institute, they, they registered one of one of our CNAP hybrids for for production in China. Well, that sounds really good. I mean, is, is there any chance that American farmers could uh, compete in this if uh, if they had the right conditions? Yeah, it's it's a really good question, and uh, you know, it's one that that I asked many times when when you know we were developing our hybrids as to you know could this be done on a on a sort of commercial farm scale because you you remember what I said that. Uh, you know, currently all of the Chinese-based production is still on relatively small scale, small scale in terms of the size of the farm. But you know, you could have twenty thousand farmers all all growing uh, small patches of land, producing the the plant. I think the you know the technology. Uh, there's still a lot of a lot of labor involved, and. Uh, you know the technology hasn't been developed to harvest and and get dried leaf and to to take that to the factory so to this day i think basically again it comes down to economics it's it's relatively small scale farming and and uh you know i i'm not aware of any sort of commercial scale farms for production and you know they ultimately as well the you know the what you have to remember is that you know the the plant is is really good at producing the drug. You know you get you get enough you get enough treatments uh, from one to two acres to treat you know thousands and thousands of people. So ultimately, the actual acreage overall is is relatively low to to sort of scale up to commercial scale farming. Yeah, I'm. I'm not interested in taking food from the mouths of folks in the developing world, and you know, and, and limiting their production of a valuable crop. But I know here in the state of Florida, there's a lot of interest in diversification, especially in things that could be very profitable in a uh, smaller acreage, and uh, sure. even organic growers and others who have plenty of good farming skills, but are always faced with. Uh, everybody selling the same crops, and in, in a state where we have a lot of land where citrus used to grow, um, turning into neighborhoods and malls, uh, keeping that in agriculture would be great. And so I, I always have to ask the question. Uh, but in addition to your efforts with the hybrids, are there ways to genetically engineer plants to maybe take out a rate limiting step or two to increase the level of artemisinin in the individual plants? Yes, it's a another good question, and and there have been a number of examples where where that's uh, that's been successful. Uh, one of the ones that I I like the most, in fact, is uh, is a group of Spanish and, and Chinese scientists who who work together to to introduce a transcription factor which alters the number of trichomes that are formed in the leaves on the surface of the leaves. And, and that alone had a, a significant impact on on close to doubling, from what I recall, the amount of artemisinin. Uh, and this was this was all done under under glasshouse conditions. As one, so that's one example where you maybe inc- where you can increase the number of glandular trichomes. Another group uh, out of China. Have recently demonstrated in combination with publishing the first draft of the Artemisia annua genome that they can introduce 
a bunch of those genes that are involved in the in the biosynthetic pathway for the synthesis and and they can also see a significant increase compared to a wild type control and when i was asked to comment on on that work i think it's it's very elegant genetic engineering work but you know if you if you now reflect on on the regulatory processes which will need to be followed this is a you know this is a chinese traditional medicine and one of the plants that the chinese are probably most proud of given that uh, one of one of their scientists has has recently won the nobel prize in physiology or medicine and uh, the, the the need now would be to do comprehensive field trials uh, to demonstrate that those yields are upheld in the field and then to get regulatory approval to grow those plants in the field uh, so so I, I have no objections to that at all, but looking at it pragmatically, I think it'll be a few years before you would see GMOs being released for, uh, for production. It really is an interesting question, because do you think that uh, anti-GMO interests, like folks like even Greenpeace or other organizations, which do claim to have a very um, uh, developing world-sensitive socially sensitive um, ethic, that they would be opposed to GE-derived Artemisian? You know, I haven't, I haven't debated that with them, but I would absolutely not be surprised if they were opposed to it because they're opposed, you know, on a, you know, it's an ideology that they're opposed quite often to, to the use of GMOs. And, and I, I don't see a difference I don't see them having a different view. I, I, I would like to think they would have a different view, but I, I can't see it happening. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. I think that you know, food is is medicine in a lot of ways, especially when it's biofortified, and people don't have a whole lot of tolerance for those technologies. And it really is sad, but probably a better example. And I really like that we were able to discuss this today because it helps me be more agile as a communicator. I think it really is an excellent example of how genetic engineering of yeast or genetic engineering of the plant gets us around a lot of the problems that can come from smallholder farmers on limited scale using plants that maybe don't necessarily produce enough all the time. It's a really interesting question that shows the social edges of a scientific question, and and I'm really glad we had time to talk about it. So some of the work was sponsored by Gates Foundation, and is that really typical of them to fund this kind of work? And how do you feel about their uh, maybe long-term commitment to this project? Now, that's a that's a very pertinent question as well. I think it was quite visionary of the of the Gates Foundation. A way back, I think it was two thousand and four, when they the the first thought of a a technological fix to you know deliver a better supply of artemisinin into the the supply chain. So ultimately, you'd have cheaper medicine and you would cure more people who are suffering and dying from from malaria. And uh, you know they they first funded the this semi-synthetic route where we've, we've talked about the production in yeast. And uh, and then myself and a colleague from York, Professor Diana Bowles, uh, approached the Gates Foundation and said, look, you know, as well as doing this in yeast, there's, there's a lot can be done on plants as well to improve them. And uh, they were open to that suggestion and, and uh, ran the two parallel projects 
uh, to improve the supply chain for artemisinin. And, and I think that's that's been a good thing because as we've seen, you know, it's been challenging to to get microorganisms to produce compounds like this. And and we've learned a lot along the way. And uh, I, I think it's it's really essential that we ultimately have a, a cheap, robust supply chain for artemisinin. And, and I personally don't really care where that comes from. You know, I'm, I'm obviously uh, passionate about plants, but if we can ultimately produce it better, you know, in a, in a yeast platform, then then that's great, you know, and uh, there's plenty of other things that plants are good at doing as well. <laughs> yeah, we can switch to solving other problems, right? <laughs> so, Professor Ian Graham, uh, if people wanted to learn more about this project or more about your laboratory, what's the best place for them to find that information? Uh, the best place is we, we've we've got a dedicated website to the Artemisia project, and uh, I'll I'll provide you with that, and maybe it can be shown along with the, the podcast. Yeah, that's perfect. I'll put it on, on the website here. So thank you very much for joining me, and we'll join you again in the future and talk about opioids. That Really looking forward to that, too. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Learn the story of Artemisinin, and learn how it helps millions of people all around the world, and how new efforts to engineer those plants or engineer microbes could have profound effects on world health, especially in places where people have less health security. I'm Kevin Fulta. Thank you for listening to the podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.